Hey there, this is Tamara Keith, and I'm at Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn, New York, where Hillary Clinton event is winding down. You can hear the music is still very loud. If you haven't tried NPR One already, please give it an honest shot. We really think you'll be glad you did. NPR One is our new app that you can use to listen to NPR and local public radio, as well as your favorite podcasts. And as you listen, NPR One listens to you. It figures out what you like and gives you more. So check it out. Find NPR One on your app store now. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our roundup of the week's political news. We'll talk about the state of the primary race as it moves into New York, following wins in Wisconsin for Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz. We'll do some listener mail and end the show with Can't Let It Go, where we all share something we're just a little bit obsessed with this week. And make sure to stick around for that because three words, wine, ice cream. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor, correspondent, journalist, emeritus. We had an episode Wednesday morning with some early Wisconsin results. Um, But just to review, uh, Ron and Danielle, what happened? Democratic side, Republican side, let's go. One-sided on both sides. You had Bernie Sanders winning 71 counties, Hillary Clinton winning one county. Milwaukee County, the most populous, but only by a few percentage points, she got wiped out. 13 percentage points overall. And on the Republican side, another 13 percent win. This one for Ted Cruz. Uh, He was not as dominant in terms of crossing the entire state, but he was much more dominant in terms of delegates because he got 36 delegates. Donald Trump only got six. And on the Democratic side, while Bernie Sanders got more, it wasn't so much more that it actually changed the percentage he needs to get from here on out to overtake her in pledged delegates. So, Danielle, what are we, we always every week we kind of look what percentage of the remaining delegates do the candidates need to win in order to clinch the nomination? What are those numbers? Right. So on the Republican side, what you have is Trump. He has to win 58 percent of the remaining delegates. Cruz, meanwhile, has to win 87 percent. So he clearly has a fair sight further to go. Uh, and on the Democrat side, Clinton would have to win 33 uh, percent and Sanders at 57 percent. So the, despite the fact that, you know, Sanders and Cruz really did win big in Wisconsin, they're still, you know, pretty far behind the front runners. And Kasich needs to win like 128 <laughs> percent. I know it's over 100 percent. He needs to invent a whole new category of delegates. OK. And win them all. He needs two pie charts. He, right. he needs delegates from back Right. I don't mean to. Yeah, I don't mean to uh, ignore Kasich here. But there's. He's, <laughs> but but the, the Ohio governor is mathematically eliminated at this point. It's not an uphill climb. It is a 90 degree wall, I believe. Is the, maybe the president of, of Ohio. <laughs> Ohio has already voted the next state to have a big primary is New York. That is on April 19th. 291 delegates are at stake for the Democrats. And all of a sudden, the Democratic race is getting ugly. It's getting testy. Yeah. I mean, you've been following it, Tamara. I have, too. But, like, there's just been this spat between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, not just over who was kind of more New York, but also who is even more qualified to be president. Um, It all seemed to start, was it Wednesday morning on Morning Joe? Joe Scarborough asked Hillary several times, is Sanders qualified to be president? And Hillary kind of hemmed and hawed. I think I'm by far the better choice. But do you you think he is qualified and do you think he is able to deliver on the things he is promising to all of these Democratic voters? 
Well, let me put it this way, Joe. I think that what he has been saying about the core issue in his whole campaign uh, doesn't seem to be rooted in an understanding of either the law or now, the she seemed to be referencing. Uh, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. She was definitely referencing <laughs> yeah. this this long interview he gave to the editorial board of the New York Daily News, where he kind of stumbled when asked about specifics on what he would do about Wall Street. If you look at J.P. Morgan, just as an example, you could do Citibank or Bank of America. What would it be? What would that institution be? Would there be a consumer bank? Would, where would the investing go? What is it? I'm not running. J.P. Morgan Chase. No, but you'd be breaking it up. That's right, and that is their decision as to what they want to do and how they want to reconfigure themselves. That's not my decision. All I am saying. And so it does sound like that was recorded in a bathroom, but you it know. is instead an <laughs> Not everybody can be in PR. Not everybody can be us. You know, it's cool. But, you know, after the Morning Joe interview and I think a statement from the Hillary campaign, the Bernie Sanders campaign got the impression that they were being called unqualified. Go yes, ahead, and, and actually... It goes to a Washington Post article that was, it was just like a quick write-up of the- The post online. Yeah, it was just like a quick online post about the MSNBC Morning Joe interview. The headline on that piece said, Hillary Clinton argues Bernie Sanders isn't qualified Mm, to be president. But she went out of her way to never say yes or no to that question. So two schools of thought at that point. Either the Sanders people saw that and were enraged that she should have said such a thing and didn't know that she had not, which seems a little unlikely since they probably watched it contemporaneously while it was on the air. Or they seized on that headline and they said, ah, this is just the provocation we need. We are going to get tough. Because the campaign doesn't just move to New York in terms of the New York primary. It moves to a New York state of mind. And the New York media market and the bare knuckles. And so by Wednesday night, Bernie Sanders has tweaked his stump speech to argue that, in fact, Hillary Clinton is not qualified to be president. Here it is. I don't believe that she is qualified if she is... If she is, through her super PAC, taking tens of millions of dollars in special interest funds. So he goes on to ding her for her vote for the Iraq war, her support of international trade agreements, etc. But this seems to be a new level in the campaign, Mm -hmm. right? There is a question here between the difference between being qualified for being president being qualified to do the job, having some notion of how to work the levers and make the machine work the way you want it to work, and the notion that one qualifies to be president by holding a certain set of positions, by being against Wall Street contributions to politics, by being against the Iraq war, that that's how one qualifies to be president, or perhaps to move it over into the discussion we're having right now, That's how one qualifies to get the vote of a good Democratic voter for president. I think that Bernie Sanders is making an argument that he's made before, actually, in debates about her Her judgment. judgment. Sorry to talk about you. No, it's perfect. I think we know exactly (laughs) what he's trying to say. But what I keep wondering is about, you know, I think you just used the phrase bare knuckles, Tim. I wonder about... How much should the gloves be off? How scared should they be of keeping their gloves off right now? Because, I mean, whoever is the candidate is going to have to unify this party. And, I mean, and Democrats have the benefit right now of having the potential for more more unification. I have this poll that came out today, uh, Thursday. Uh, It was from the Public Religion Research Institute uh, and The Atlantic, and it shows that Clinton voters are more favorable than unfavorable towards Sanders. Uh, Sanders voters are... 
43% favorable towards her, 54% unfavorable. But that is a fair sight different from how it is on the Republican side. Crew supporters don't like Trump. Trump supporters don't like crew. That's just how it goes. I think we have to, you know, when talking about the gloves coming off, we got to keep the gloves in perspective. On Mm -hmm. the Dem side of the race, we're talking about some Mickey Mouse gloves compared to, like, some (laughs) boxing gloves on the GOP side. Sure. And there might be brass knuckles. Right. The kind of of gloves that they wear in Mad Max Thunder Road (laughs) that have those big spikes on the gloves. like, I mean, this... Neither Sanders or Hillary are calling out each other's wives for being good looking or not. No one's calling anyone names. No, so, I think I mean, Jane Sanders totally is a fair. sight better looking than Bill Clinton, don't you? I mean, come on. Yes, I'm not seriously. touching that one with no a two foot pole. But, I mean, also, isn't what Bernie Sanders doing out loud now is what candidates try to do every campaign? Isn't every campaign about proving that you're more qualified than the other one? Well, right? yeah, but, but there is there is a long-standing sort of unspoken rule, particularly in terms of primary politics, where you try to say, I'm more qualified. And Hillary was trying to say that on Morning Joe. I'm more qualified. I'm more qualified. I'm more qualified. But what the media want to hear you say is that the other person is not qualified. And the other party will immediately jump on that, start making their campaign ads for next fall, and in the meantime, have a field day with it. Now, this is all getting so much hotter, we should acknowledge, because the New York primary is happening, what, April 19th? Yes. And what I've been seeing, um, there seems to be this subtle battle between Hillary and Bernie over who was like the real New Yorker. (laughs) You know, like, so I was in Brooklyn for a few days, and they both have offices in Brooklyn. Uh, Hillary's campaign headquarters are in- Like national headquarters. National headquarters are in are in uh, Brooklyn Heights, kind of a Tony neighborhood in Brooklyn. Hipster. No. No. You know, Bernie no. Sa- not a hipster in sight. It is not a hipster It's fancy no. Brooklyn. Correct. But here's the thing. Not a hipster. Bernie Sanders' New York State headquarters are in Gowanus, which is like old manufacturing, warehousey, up-and-coming, trendy hipster. Hipster. Right? I spent time at both campaigns, and the differences were night and day. I mean, like... The Hillary office is a well-oiled machine. You know, everyone is young and energetic and peppy and pretty and, like, everything's in its right place. All the cubicles are in order, right? And then you go into uh, the New York office for Sanders. Their office manager is a volunteer who just has a lot of free time right now. Um, They have a grocery list on the wall, right, when you walk in that you can see. It has all kinds of things, including coffee, tea, electric tea kettle. Blintzes. um, No, uh, a bike rack, paper shredder, microwave, giant Post-its, and food always welcome. Like, it, 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 it is, as several staffers there told me, it's scrappy. And that is what the Sanders campaign has been. And actually, I about a year ago, I did two stories. We had this whole series, Home, Where the Candidates Consider Home. Yeah. And it's interesting because... Hillary Clinton adopted New York to run for the Senate, uh, but she lives in Chappaqua. Sure, you know she she does have now deep ties in New York. Where is Chappaqua in relation to the city? It's a forty-five minute train ride, commuter rail. Okay. And then Bernie Sanders grew up in a three-room tenement apartment in Brooklyn, like deep Brooklyn. When Brooklyn was Brooklyn, well before <laughs> the current rediscovery. And then he left yeah. when he was relatively young and never came back he came he actually came back he told me in a story he came back maybe about a decade ago and was walking around the old neighborhood and um no one smiled or said hello and it felt weird it didn't feel like he really feels like vermont is home Mm. all of this is to say that 
neither of them are a hundred percent New Yorker. Right. Yeah. And isn't the whole point about New York, especially New York City, is that like anyone can come into that place and make it right. and well, be a part of the community? And also the question is I hear a song. I, I'm I not think I can it. make it there. Sing it, Ron. I can make sing it, it No, I need you to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. Can I give you snaps? No. Can I give you snaps for that? Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. I'm sorry I brought it up. All right. We're going to get to the Republicans in a second. But first, we should say that this weekend, voting is actually happening. It's not a primary. It's not very big. It is the Wyoming Democratic caucus where Bernie Sanders is expected to totally dominate, I would assume. As he, as he has in all these Western caucus states mm-hmm. where uh, relatively few people who are relatively activist and tend to be uh, very much attracted to the anti-Wall Street and anti-Washington message of Bernie Sanders uh, will probably predominate as they have elsewhere. And there are 18 delegates to be selected. 18. Uh, every delegate counts. Every delegate does. And here again, we expect the lion's share to go to Bernard Sanders. Though one Western caucus that Bernie Sanders did not win was Nevada. Hillary Clinton won that one. But there have been some developments, some post-caucus developments. And we got a lot of emails and tweets about it this week. Um, And so I called up uh, John Ralston of the Ralston Report. Uh, He is a Nevada political writer, guru, guy. And asked him what happened, because a lot of people were writing us saying, why aren't you reporting that Bernie Sanders won Nevada? Well, Bernie has not won Nevada. What happened at the county conventions, especially at the Clark County Convention, is that more Bernie Sanders supporters showed up to fill delegate slots and alternate slots, in fact, 600 more in Clark County, thus costing Hillary uh, Clinton uh, uh, at least a couple of delegates. It's likely 18 to 17 right now. But again, that could change at the state convention depending on what the attendance is like, which shows kind of the kookiness of the caucus process. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's amazing to me is on caucus night in various states, we report breathlessly on the results. And those results are basically estimates. It's not really real. And then there's like this very convoluted process that's a little different in every state. Yeah, and this is deja vu for uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign here in Nevada. Hillary Clinton won the state by almost an identical margin in 2008 uh, by five points, but was outmaneuvered uh, by the Obama campaign and uh, actually ended up losing the delegate fight 13 to 12. Uh, And so uh, I am sure she's uh, having recurring nightmares about what happened over the weekend. So this can keep happening, he said? Well, you know, all these caucus states, and this goes for Iowa, it mm-hmm. goes for Washington mm-hmm. State, goes for a lot of the smaller ones, uh, th- they go on through a segmented system of voting. It starts at precinct level, goes to county level, goes to congressional district, goes to statewide. And by the time you finally get done, the results ought to, in some sense or another, resemble those of the original initial vote, but they don't always. And this is a ongoing story. So at this point, though, is she still leading in Nevada? Yes. But that could change, we're saying? Or she could get farther ahead or she could get farther behind. That's the other thing to think about in all of these primary processes is that these are parties. This is not the secretary of state. This is not Mm -hmm. a democratic process. This is a party. This is a private club. That's right. We'll be back in just a second to talk about the Republicans as well as religious freedom laws. But first, this break. Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital, the smart way to track and manage your net worth. 
See all your financial accounts in one place and get free online investing software and money management tools. You can even speak with a dedicated personal investment advisor. Join us today at personalcapital.com politics. Hey, I'm Sarah McCammon on the campaign trail at the moment at JFK Airport in New York. Before we get back to the show, we want to recommend the newest NPR podcast, Embedded. Each episode, Embedded takes you to a new place out in the world, searching for the people behind a headline. This week, follow host Kelly McEvers as she gets embedded with biker gangs after a deadly shootout in Texas, trying to figure out how it happened and who to trust. Listen and subscribe to Embedded now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. We're back, and it's time to shift gears and talk about the Republicans. On the GOP side, New York, do we expect Donald Trump to do well there? We expect Donald Trump to do quite well there. The polls show he has not lost any altitude in his home state. Uh, he is over 50 percent mm-hmm. in a poll we have just seen. Uh, that could indicate that if his vote is well distributed around the state, he could have sort of a Wisconsin-like experience, such as Ted Cruz had, for New York. And that, of course, would be much more delegate-rich. He could win across most of the 27 congressional districts, and they give you delegates based on how you do in each congressional district, and then you get a bonus if you win the whole state overall. He could really take the lion's share here. So does that mean that, like, four days ago we were talking about how Donald Trump was on the skids, and in, like, a week and a half we're going to be saying Donald Trump is on a roll? Well, Probably. Yes, yes, but I mean, this is the what I think is one of the sillier things about how we talk about politics, though. I mean, it's like, yeah, Donald Trump is on, was on the skid slash is in terms of, you know, say PR and how s- certain things look in terms of how his, to us, I would add, um, who watch this every day. Uh, but I mean, that doesn't always equate to adding or subtracting votes. And you know? as we know from polling on Trump supporters, they seemed to have gotten behind Trump early, and they're mm-hmm. not changing their minds. Right. His right? Su- that this is one thing about his supporters. I wrote about this a couple weeks ago. They tend to decide a lot earlier than uh, the supporters of other candidates in this campaign. It seems to be that people decide, you know, a few days, a few weeks, even you know, a month before a primary or a caucus, that yes, I am voting for Donald Trump. And the people who are left over, you know, kind of took their pick of the not Trump candidates. Not that you can exactly lump them all together, but those people tended to decide a bit later. That's one of the things about the way we cover the primary season, which, let's face it, goes on for months and months and months. And this particular year, it seems to be going on longer than ever before. It's a little bit like a long sports season and a sports franchise. If you're talking about a 162-game Major League Baseball season, there are going to be times when your team, whatever it is, is having a good week, having a good month. Everybody's going to be excited. They're popping the champagne corks already. And then you're going to have a slump, and everybody's going to talk about how they're dead, dead, dead. And Unless what a you're Golden State. Unless you're Golden State in basketball this year, which is a highly anomalous kind yes, of situation. Yes. But you're right. That there are occasions when a candidate starts right out and sweeps everything before himself or herself. I would, add, just, the, I would add the Yukon women to that, by the way. Yes, ah. yes. Yeah. There are yes. some boring franchises, like, <laughs> if you will, the Warriors and the Huskies. The right. Yukon and we should just Huskies. be clear that the Golden State Warriors uh, are on a one hell of a win streak. Yes, they are. 
That's your people. Those are my people. Yeah. <laughs> Sports ball. Can we talk about Ted Cruz not at all behaving like the Golden State Warriors in New York? He's not winning right now. No. No. Well, and What's uh, the deal by, by the by, the real clear politics average, in fact, he's behind Kasich by a few points oh, in New York. That he, is cruel. Really. Ted, Ted behind Cruz and, Kasich. Well, no, I am I am not imputing Kasich That's here. What really I'm saying is that Cruz is in last well, place. Well, because he there. had this whole spiel for a while about New York values, right? right? And that's yes. come back to bite him in the... It's come back to bite him in the aftermath. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, so in Iowa, a line saying, ah, New York values, that works pretty well in Iowa with religious conservatives. And that's who he was talking to. Here's a question. When he said New York values, was he talking about Binghamton and Syracuse and Buffalo and all the smaller (laughs) towns? Well, he tried to clarify it today and say he was just talking about New York City liberal elite. But the damage was done. So, I mean, already, though, he's been seeing the damage. So he went to the Bronx... Uh, he wanted to tour a prep school in the area. The students organized to keep him out of the school. That's tough. Um, That's one tough. of his speeches was interrupted by a protester saying, we don't like you. Donald Trump has brought this up again in, in his stump speeches. Rudy Giuliani. Was really? like, oh, I didn't see yes. that. What? So Rudy oh, Giuliani guy, was though. saying, well, first really, Rudy Giuliani says he's going to vote for Trump. And then he said, you know, Ted Cruz, I can make fun of New York because I'm from New York, but you cannot make fun of New York values. It's not okay. Doesn't this whole argument of like casting an entire state in a certain light, it's never smart, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. States are diverse, right? I mean, like, it's cheap politics. New York, it it, it comes back to bite you. New York City alone has given us Giuliani Mm -hmm. and Jay Z. Iowa has has given us uh, Herbert Hoover, John Wayne, a lot of great people. Texas gave us George W. Bush and Beyonce. True. Wow, that just about evens out. Real quick before we move on, New York is April 19th, but then what comes after that? April 26th is a big one. We've got Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Rhode Island, and the big one, Pennsylvania. So that is that would be like the mid-Atlantic primary? I think you'd have to call it northeast in general because you start with Pennsylvania, you go directly east, and then you go north at least as far as uh, Rhode Island. You know, you're getting Connecticut. You're getting uh, into the northeast as the well. The Amtrak primary? Yeah, yeah. So there's actually something happening in this country that's unrelated to the presidential election. Amazing. Yeah, I know. North Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, they were all in the news this week for variations on laws that many people will say restrict the rights of gay and transgender people. So... What is going on with all these laws? Some are, like, called bathroom laws. So North Mm -hmm. Carolina's is more about bathrooms, right? And it restricts men to men's restrooms and women to women's restrooms, and that causes some complications for folks that are transgender. But the law that was passed in Mississippi was more about the religious freedom of people with certain beliefs to not do things like grant a marriage license to a gay couple. Uh, or, for that matter, make a cake for a gay wedding mm-hmm. or yeah. provide other services for a gay wedding or for a gay couple. And then there was another one in Georgia that was vetoed by the governor mm-hmm. there. Because right. the movie industry said, yeah. Yeah. we will not make movies in your state. And you've been offering us all these tax breaks to try to get us to come make movies there. So, And the NFL also said that if that law was made law in Georgia, that they would reconsider having future Super Bowls in, mm-hmm. in um, the city of Atlanta. Which recalls the year before in Indiana where when the NCAA said we're not going to be so happy about being in Indianapolis if you pass a law like this, that law was altered before it was passed. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how much of this do you guys think is a reaction to the Supreme Court's ruling legalizing gay marriage? Is this like a, a backlash situation? 
I mean, a reaction to the ruling itself, perhaps. I mean, I, I would also add, though, I mean, I, I never cease to be struck by how fast gay marriage became both acceptable, even championed by a lot of people. I've seen people of all ages, even a fair bit older than me in my life, uh, change their tune on this. Um, and so I'd say it's more than just, you know, a reaction to new laws and new uh, regimes. I, I think it's a reaction to a new cultural zeitgeist. It's a, It's like this country changed underneath all of us in the span of a couple of decades. It's really kind of amazing when it, you think about it. It's even less than a couple of decades. Yeah. In 2004, one of the big strategies that Karl Rove had for reelecting George W. Bush as president was to make sure there was an anti-same-sex marriage initiative on the ballot in the swing states. And I and was in Ohio at that like time. Yeah, gangbusters. And it certainly worked in Ohio, and it brought out a very strong vote against gay marriage in Ohio. Uh, and that made a big difference by all evidence in the rather narrow win that George W. Bush had in Ohio, which was the crucial state to the Electoral College that year and made him president for another four years. So that was just 12 years ago. And now we've had the Supreme Court weigh in. Same-sex marriage is the law throughout the land. So it is, as you say, a reaction against the cultural change, but it's also very much, I think, driven by that decision of the Supreme Court just last year. That's really what put it on high heat. And what goes along with that speed of change, and, you know, there are, of course, those many people who change their minds on gay marriage, but, of course, there are plenty of people who did not and who have uh, deeply held religious convictions about this. And for them to watch not only the culture but the law change uh, is quite challenging. Why do I have to know? Why do I have to have this forced on me? Why can't I just go on the way I always have, and why can't everybody else go on the way they supposedly always have. The conservative point of view is that this is being forced on people, that suddenly they're finding people in their bathrooms or restrooms in public places uh, that they don't think belong there. That's challenging to them. And at the very least, at the very least, can't we let each state have its own sensibility mm -hmm. on this? Uh, that's more or less the way we used to do things on abortion before Roe versus Wade. And can't we just let each state have its own sensibility and its own legal and not legal. I, I, I'm very interested in the changing nature of laws surrounding gay and transgender rights. There was a long stretch of time where you saw laws about this issue that were focused on the actions of gay people or lesbian people or transgender people. Like and banning their lives. Exactly. Banning the way they... And so now yes. we're seeing laws that touch on the same issue, but they are focused on permitting certain actions of people opposed to that group, hmm. right? Yeah. So the framing of these laws is different. It's no longer about the rights of gay people. It's about the rights, actually, of people who are not gay. Ron, do you think this ultimately goes to the Supreme Court somehow? Yes, because everything seems to these days. Eventually, it will get to the court. The court may or may not take it. And this is one more way in which the breaking of this four-to-four -four tie, either with Merrick Garland or with the appointee of the next president, whomever that might be, that court is going to make a great number of highly important decisions. Let's take one more quick break, and then it's time for listener mail and Can't Let It Go. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, 
built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Let's do some listener mail. We've got a question this week from a member of the military who wanted to stay anonymous. And we get more of those than you might think, actually. But this was a guy who was asking a question about James Madison. And James Madison wrote in the Federalist Paper number 10 that the U.S. is a republic, not a democracy, to guard against what he called factions or, quote, a number of citizens united adverse to the rights of our citizens. And so this guy's question for Professors Elving and Kurtzleben (laughs) is... Is whether Donald Trump is leading a faction. And we should start at the beginning with like, what are the Federalist Papers? I'm sorry. Sure. I was so delighted to get the, to get this uh, email in part because I just saw Hamilton and I, there's there's so much Federalist Papers in that. Uh, this is one of the Federalist Papers not written by Alexander Hamilton, as of the... <laughs> Uh, our anonymous writer wrote, this is by James Madison. If you bring up Hamilton, you have to sing at least one line. At least Hamilton. we need at least one line. Even the Alexander Hamilton! Um... I Something. haven't ever listened to the soundtrack. I am not throwing away my <laughs> shot. I am not throwing away. All right, that's your Good. that's what you're getting. All right. Um, so Federalist Ten, uh, James Madison is writing about uh, factions, um, right? Like our reader says, a number of citizens united adverse to the rights of other citizens. So, but the thing is, he's saying you can't stop factions from happening. You either have to get rid of liberty, which you wouldn't want to do, or give everybody the same thoughts and opinions, which is impractical. So, okay, what do you do? He said, create a republic. You have representative democracy, not pure democracy, representative democracy. And the way he put it was extend the sphere, have a big uh, republic and make sure you're bringing in lots of factions. Because when you have a whole bunch of factions, then no one can dominate. And to some degree, we didn't really have a way of resolving this in terms of the House and the Senate and the other branches of the federal government that they created in the Constitution. So eventually parties arose as they had in the British Parliament, and they tried to, in some sense or another, organize the factions and bring them into some sort of manageable relationship to each other and then to the greater whole, and then put up candidates who could sort of hold that coalition together. And in the end, we've really never evolved a third major party in this country. Maybe we will. Maybe it'll happen soon. Maybe it'll happen this year. But it's been mostly two parties from the beginning. The identities changed a little bit. The Whigs went away. The Republicans came in. But we have had basically two parties who perform that function. Okay, so to answer the man's question. This listener was writing, I believe, with reference to Donald Trump's position on Muslims immigrating to the United States and putting a hold on that for some period of time. Are those who find that an appealing prospect a faction? Polls show that that's a rather large faction. We're not talking about a tiny number of people in this Mm -hmm. country. It is not a majority by any means, may not be a plurality, but it is a substantial fraction of Americans who believe Donald Trump is right about that. And now we have another question. This one is from Lindsay in Chicago, quote, a feminist and Hillary Clinton supporter. She wrote... Here we go. While I am thrilled at the prospect of being alive during America's first female presidency, I have this one issue that I can't totally shake, and his name is Bill. I was 12 years old during the Monica Lewinsky scandal and just old enough to understand what the news anchors were alluding to. I've read things that make me nervous that Bill Clinton may, despite his political record, not actually respect women. How can I not let my skeptical opinion of him influence my very positive opinion of her? This feels like, um, like, dear Abby. <laughs> I mean, I think it's totally fair to have an opinion of Hillary Clinton politically informed by 
Bill's career politically because they have been intertwined. When Bill ran for president, Hillary was campaigning with him. When he was in office, she was lobbying for policy and pushing policy herself as a part of the administration. Now, when she's on the stump, she has Bill on the stump as well. Like, from the time that he ran for the first time, he said, we're a package deal. Yeah, he said, he two said for the that. price two of one. Two for the price of mm-hmm. one. So I think that they are intertwined politically. Uh, how that influences the way you think about either or both of their personal lives, I don't know. But it's totally fair and valid to say the way that I think about my vote for Hillary is informed by Bill. I think that's fair, right? Who have we ever had in the past whose spouse, as they were running for president, was a former president of the United States? Mm -hmm. No one, obviously. This is totally new ground. To have someone whose spouse is more famous than they are, really, in a sense, and already more of a historical figure than they are, is totally unprecedented. So we're breaking new ground in whatever way you want to look at it. But is this particular listener more concerned about Bill's politics or is she more concerned about how he relates to women on a human level, that he doesn't respect them, and that that somehow means that because Hillary has stayed with him and stood by him all these years, she can't respect Hillary. And just to add a female voice to this discussion, I I guess (laughs) (laughs) there is also an argument that could be made that a woman should not be judged by her husband. Yeah. One last letter, Rob from Pottstown, Pennsylvania, wrote us. He says, I am a hashtag never Trump Republican from outside of Philadelphia. In the primary here, my understanding is that I will be voting for individual delegates who are undeclared as to which candidate they support. I would absolutely die if I find out that I voted for a delegate that went to the convention and cast a vote for Trump. What is a never Trump Republican like myself to do? Find out. Find out who these people whose names are going to be on the ballot would actually support. I believe there are 54 of the 71 delegates to the Republican convention from Pennsylvania who fall in this category, and uh, they are going to be free agents, and you should find out who they would support if they got to the convention before you vote for them. And that kind of information should really be made available either by the Republican Party of Pennsylvania or by the candidates or by people who, like, for example, hashtag never Trump, ought to be getting organized to get that information out. And now we need to take one more very quick five-second break. All right, we're back. And the reason that that break was so very short is because we just needed to bring the ice cream into the studio. It is now time for Can't Let It Go, that segment where we talk about the things that we just can't stop thinking about in politics or otherwise. And um, Sam... Yes. So I have today for you guys wine ice cream. Whoa. Interesting. uh, Four flavors. uh, Together at last. Peach white Zinfandel, chocolate Cabernet, uh, strawberry sparkling, and port. I'm calling port. Oh, Sorry. Right. Oh. Chocolate. Is there crap- alcohol Wait, oh. content in this There's ice alcohol cream? in this, and, and, and there is a story. So over the course of the last week, I was reporting a story on Hillary Clinton's outreach to voters in New York. And one of the forums she did was an event in Syracuse with small business owners in upstate New York. And one of the women that spoke at this town hall was a woman named Roxana Hurlbert of Mercer's Dairy in upstate New York. And she talked about a product she makes now called wine ice cream. It's, it's ice cream with wine that was created with some help from Hillary Clinton. Our wine ice cream is a direct result of Senator Clinton's 
She invented it with us. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, Clinton took a lot of small business owners to the White House in 2004, I believe, for what's called farm days, where people show off their foods and their crops, et cetera, at the White House. This woman was at a table with her ice cream next to some people that had wine. We're giving away wine. And people at the farm days kept putting wine on the ice cream. Hillary Clinton walks by and says, hey, why don't you just make wine ice cream? Hilarity ensues. She makes this happen. Hillary helps her get it to market. And this is one of the achievements that Hillary Clinton is touting as to uh, helping small business owners in the state. And Hillary Clinton has said that should she become the president, she would serve wine ice cream in the White House. At, like, state dinners? Yeah. Is she going to reverse Michelle Obama's ban on all things delicious? Oh, my God. It tastes like wine. I hope she would keep the, the garden going. You know? Yeah. Okay. Do you like it? So we should taste it. I'm tasting Oh my God, well, good. I, I, I was eating the whole time Sam was talking. Are we, still, are we still on the air? This is really good. That's good. It does have a... Um, no, it's like a, a warning for pregnant women. Oh, really? Ingredients, Excellent. port wine. Yeah. All right. Sam, the ice cream was your can't let it go, Ron. Um, other than that pint of ice cream, what can't you let go of this week? Okay, I apologize because this was more than 72 hours ago, but I cannot get out of my mind the image of Sarah Palin bombing at Serb Hall in Milwaukee uh, during the Wisconsin primary. She came in to give a speech to the Milwaukee County Republicans, and uh, it was a, a large group of people. They probably were exactly the kind of people who cheered her like crazy when she was nominated for vice president. And yes, she was speaking for Donald Trump, not the most popular candidate in Wisconsin this past week, but her speech was amazing in the unfortunate sense. And in comparison to the knockout that she gave in St. Paul in 2008. Thank you. It is always so good to be in Wisconsin. Uh, Getting off the airplane today as I'm walking through the airport and seeing all the green and gold and the green and gold till I'm dead and cold, paraphernalia everywhere with the Packers. Reminds me of my dad's man cave. He is the biggest cheese. Yeah, Scott Detrow was there. I asked him about it afterwards, and he said that the reception was just frigid. Yeah. Mm. Well, it was cold in Wisconsin last week. (laughs) They call that April in Wisconsin. Right. And I'm going to go next on Can't Let It Go because uh, we want to let Danielle go last because hers is so sweet. It is. So the thing I can't let go of is John Kasich. Um, I know, last week... uh, This was also a can't let it go. John Kasich and food. So last week, Sue Davis talked about him not eating pizza properly because he used a fork. Well, this week, I think he was making up for lost time. He went to a Bronx deli and there is a picture floating around of him putting a giant hoagie type thing into his mouth. And there's a quote that says, how am I going to get my mouth around this? (laughs) (laughs) i'm not doing that all right as evidenced here um the article in the new york daily news says he quickly figured it out um (laughs) (laughs) it's a very large sandwich (laughs) i really didn't mean it that way (laughs) he also ordered several yeah, it's because we're drunk on this wine ice that's, cream. That's probably it, yeah. Yeah. I'm he blasted. also ordered right several, now. he also tucked into several helpings of spaghetti bolognese. And the thing about this that is a little questionable, it seems like a flip-flop. Um, last week, 
in Wisconsin, it was reported that someone offered him famous Wisconsin frozen custard, and he said, no, it's not good for my diet. Hmm. Cheat day. It was a cheat day. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have to say that the campaign trail is a hazardous place when it comes to food because sometimes you just need to eat. Mm-hmm. You just need to eat, and then you eat something terrible, and then you regret it, and then you're like, I'm going to be good, and you're good for a week, and then it all falls apart. A week is pretty admirable, actually. You get my props on that. Well, well, <laughs> my streaks this are, is not one of the good my weeks. My streaks are four hours long. They but, always yeah. hand you a local delicacy, and that's never healthy. Right. It's never a healthy thing. <laughs> no. Can't be. That's true. All right. All right, Danielle. Penelope. All right. This is what I can't let go this week is this great clip that we're going to play for you that a a listener sent to us. We got an email from a listener in Arkansas named Josh. Uh, He recorded a conversation he had with his eight-year-old daughter, Penelope, one morning before school. Uh, And they were talking about what she knows and she doesn't know about the election. And the thing is, Josh wrote to us that he really tries not to talk politics around young Penelope. He wants her to form her own opinions about politics without his influence on her. And he wrote this. This election has been really challenging to me as a parent. It's the first time having a kid old enough to know that there's an election going on. I mostly just try to keep her from worrying about it. And I don't want her to think it's more important than just being nice to her little brother or kids at school, which is an admirable sentiment. Um, But nonetheless, he had this exchange with Penelope. We're going to play a bit of it. And we should just say that you're going to hear Penelope ask about Emerson. And that's uh, her little brother. Do you know if there's any... Girls running for president now? No. No, you don't know, or there's vice presidents, I think. Well, there's actually a woman running for president. Her name's Hillary. (gasps) You didn't know that? No. Who should vote for her? Why? Because it's a girl. Just because she's a girl? And she, she, her dream is to be the first girl president. (laughs) That's her dream. And I should vote for her just because she's a girl. Yes. Would you vote for me? Well, I would definitely vote for you, but not because you're a girl. Would you vote for Emerson? Yeah. Would you vote for Mommy? Mmm, maybe. <laughs> maybe? What do you mean, maybe? <laughs> she's a good reporter. Uh. <laughs> Dodge. What do you mean, maybe? You're wasting time here. Um, okay. <laughs> so you think I should vote for Hillary just because she's a girl? Yes, her dream is to become the first You don't think Donald girl. Trump's dream is to become a president? Uh-uh. <laughs> no? What do you no. think his dream is? To be rich. <laughs> oh, well, I think he already is rich. Yeah. What, He's what if I... History. What if I said, <laughs> what if I said, I'm voting for Ted Cruz just because he's a man? If he was the first man to be president. <laughs> okay, so there's there are a few things to love about this. One is the way that she gasps when she, like, she gasps. She's so excited to find out there is a girl, as they put it, running for president. Uh, The way she tells him he's wasting time. She knows he's dodging the question. But Penelope is learning valuable lessons already about identity politics. And this question of should you vote for someone just because they're a woman is rattling around on the campaign trail as we speak. Susan Sarandon has addressed it. I spoke to uh, author Rebecca Traster a few weeks ago and asked her about it. I mean, 
And there is the debate about whether you should vote based on, you know, issues alone or whether, you know, it is valuable to you to see your kind of person, i.e. a woman, uh, someone, half the population that has not been represented in the White House yet, to actually get into the White House and whether that is a, a legitimate reason to vote. So I love this on so many levels. All right, we're going to end it there. But before we go, Sam, uh, you have eaten three quarters of a pint of ice cream. With no shame. My body, my choice. And you actually have one more thought you want to share about ice cream? (laughs) Yeah, so we are equal opportunity here. Um, Any other candidate tied to any other kind of food, Sam will try it. If y'all can get me a Trump steak, I'll eat it. From what I understand, there is a Bernie Sanders ice cream. We tried to get it. We couldn't. There's only 40 pints in circulation, and you have to give through his campaign to get it. So Ben and Jerry, 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 we are here, 1111 North Capitol Street, Northeast. We'll all eat it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Trump steak, I'll take one. Okay, that's it for this episode. If you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. That helps other people find us. And thank you for doing that if you already have. Also, find us on Twitter. Send us your questions there or by email. Our email address is nprpolitics at npr.org. Thank you for writing us. We do read everything, even if we can't answer every question on the show. And someday soon, we might even do a special episode, an all-listener mail episode of the podcast, which I'm really looking forward to. So keep them coming. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I am eating ice cream. I am a digital political reporter. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. I'm Sam Sanders, royal food tester. (laughs) And thanks for listening (laughs) to the NPR Politics Podcast.